and uh, they're important as a time of celebration. I realized this morning they're important because they, um, they give um, some honor and recognition both to um, parents and children. And they're important also because many a time during graduation you will have um, a special assembly or something where either the principal or a teacher or some recognized um, scholar will come and give some last words of wisdom to the graduates from their school before they move on to a different stage in their education or uh, their life. So um, and that's a good time of year to do this because, well, you know, Father's Day is coming. And, but uh, the words that were just read to us by Tim, I think they are part of uh, a graduation ceremony for the disciples. And um, they're important because many a time you heard the word glory. Jesus here tells us how we give glory to him as well as glory to himself as we are, how we are a blessing to the world. And these words are important um, <clears throat> because Jesus both celebrates what, what he's done and also what will be done by the next teacher, uh, the Holy Spirit, once he ascends. These are last words. This is the last recorded prayer of Jesus uh, in the New Testament before he goes up to heaven. So in this prayer, I would like to, for us to gather something that is of importance for us this morning and in our lives. In this prayer, Jesus prays for himself first, and then he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for, he prays for all the believers. And um, we'll get something out of these three sections of his prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we gather around the words of Jesus here and want to hear them, not just from the page, but from your Holy Spirit to our hearts, we pray that you will enable us to have hearts that are open for me to have a mind that's clear to share, and we thank you ahead of time for this, because we ask in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Jesus first prays for himself in verses 1 through 4 of this chapter. As the hour of his great work and return home are come, he asks the Father to glorify him as he has given glory to his Father through his work. He acknowledges the authority that he was given to give eternal life to all humanity by revealing the love of God to mankind. He affirms that having glorified God the Father by having accomplished his work, he is able to do this. He states, and this is eternal life. What is eternal life? It is to know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. We think that life consists of a number of things. Many a time we think of the outside things, of position, of wealth, of even uh, relationships. But Jesus tells us that the life that truly matters is for us to come to the realization that God is God, that he is with us, and to understand this through what he has shown us, what Jesus has shown us in his life. God is incarnated. He is in everything that we do. He is in everyone that we meet. And as we recognize this, that he's in us, we are starting to experience eternal life. 
And Jesus is telling us that it's the revelation of God's love through which God um, gives us life. Actually, in 2 Corinthians, we read that God's love, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. It's the display of God's love and the experience of God's love that saves us. Now, I believe that these words from this long prayer of John chapter 17, these words don't just tell us what Jesus was praying about at that time, but they tell us also what he has been praying about since and what he's praying about now. And here is why I think so. They were said right before his glorification. And the scholars among you would know that the life on earth of the pre-existent Christ, Christ existed from all eternity, but it's been compared to a pendulum. First, his descent. You see? His descent from heaven all the way down to earth, and then after that to the cross. And then the second part is his going up of the pendulum, his glorification. There's two parts to that. It's a pendulum, like this. First, his kenosis, or emptying, is best described in Philippians chapter 2. You know that chapter. It says, let this mind be in you. I'm going to turn to it, as a matter of fact. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through verse 8. In this chapter, Paul is encouraging the Philippians to have the same mind of Christ, but he's also telling us about what Christ did. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who, and I want you to feel the descent here. He's going down. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He echinosin, he emptied himself of his divinity, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. You feel that descent from pre-existent member of the Godhead from space out there to a speck of dust in the womb of a teenager in Nazareth, Galilee, a looked-down place, living in humble conditions as a carpenter, learning obedience all the way down to death, even death on the cross. That's the descent. But then these words of the prayer of Jesus are said by him just before he is glorified. That's the second half, his ascent. You see, the ascent part of the pendulum. And in Jesus' mind, his ascent is composed of three things lumped together. First, his uplifting on the cross as part of it. Then his resurrection from the tomb. And then his ascension into the clouds, to the right hand of God, where he sits there in all power, in the heavenly sanctuary, as our high priest, forever making intercession for us. Glorified. You see, the descent and the ascent. And these words of Jesus, they are stated in his prayer right before his glorification. He has that in mind. And that's the reason why I think that 
the prayer that he prays in this chapter is not just what he was thinking about back then, but what he was thinking that he would continue praying for as he would become our intercessor in the heavenly sanctuary. It's something that's important for us, not just as something that happened back then, but something that's happening and is important to Jesus right now. And so if, as members of his church, we consider Christ and Christianity important, I think that we would um, consider his prayer and the content and the subject of his prayer as important because that was his last words before this. That was his last word. That was therefore utmost and foremost in his mind. He indicated this to us in, his, in this prayer. As he prayed for himself. Then he also prayed um, for his disciples. Jesus constantly we read in Scripture that God the Father and Jesus had great concern for the world as a whole and still has concerns for the world as a whole. But we also, from what he has done and what, he's, what, he's been, what, what we've read in the Scriptures, know that the church is foremost. It's the apple of his eyes, you know. Those that are close to him, that he has revealed himself more fully, that have accepted him. Those who profess having faith in him, having received his words of truth to keep them. That's the church that's most precious to him. And so in this last prayer, he does not, first of all, pray for the world. No, he doesn't. He prays for the church. Maybe sometimes we need to quit praying for the world and be concerned about how God wants us to be blessed. You know, there's no way for us to bless the world unless we're blessed first. And Jesus knew that. Now, the setting of Jesus' prayer helps us to understand why this last prayer of Jesus for his disciples. Where were they when Jesus prayed this prayer? It was right after the, it was, it was right after the foot washing and, and, and the Lord's Supper. And, uh, and, and then after this, they would go to Gethsemane, but they were in the upper room. You know, either in the upper room or in, um, in, in, on the Mount of Olives. Now, what was the setting? What, what had just happened in the upper room? The first thing there. The few that were associated with him were all there with him in the upper room. The 12 disciples were there, weren't they? They were there. They were all in the building. But as you recall, as they came in, they were all filled with rivalries and envy and, and pride. And so Jesus taught them first by example, didn't he? he? He served them. And then after that, by words as to uh, how one should be the greatest and how they should relate to one another. He told them three times, what I have done to you, you do. To, blessed are you if you do it to each other. And then as he prays for them in this last prayer, what does he pray for? He prays that the Father would keep them from evil and that instead they may be one. See, that he would keep them from evil, but that instead they would be one so that they may experience the joy. You see here how Jesus defines evil? Evil, you see, that they may be delivered from evil, but that instead they would be one. Unity is the good here. 
And evil is the separation and the, the alienation that they had with each other. He says, he says, may you preserve them from evil. And evil is defined here as whatever it is and whoever works opposite to love and unity and the joy that this brings. And by the way, Jesus inserted that in those words in the very words of the Lord's Prayer as it's come down to us. Deliver us from evil. And I think we can take that background. Evil is what's not love and unity, you see. And it is through what that they are kept by the Father into this unity. He says, you sanctify them by the, your truth. Your word is truth. Even as one of them was becoming the epitome of betrayal, Jesus gave them that word of truth. After all, it's Monday, Thursday. It's the Thursday on which he gave them that new commandment of Monday, Thursday. This new commandment I give to you. That's the truth of God that he gave them, that keeps them. That you love one another as I, as I have loved you, that you have love for one another. And he adds, by this, by this very th thing, the, the world will know. By this thing, they will know or they will not know. That's that important. That you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that's what Jesus prays for his disciples. The many church in the present that's around him at that time. That's what was foremost in his mind in this last prayer right before his glorification. But he didn't just pray for them. He also prayed, as was read by Tim, for all those who will believe in me through their word. All those that through the ministry of Peter, James, John, Thomas, and all of these were evangelized throughout the world, in Europe and in Asia and wherever. And this is the portion that was read by Tim a moment ago. What's interesting is apparently Jesus foresaw that it wasn't just his present disciples that would have problems with that single most important identifying mark of his church, but that his believers down the ages would as well. If you don't feel very loving, don't feel like you are the only ones and Jesus didn't foresee that. He knew that that's, that's the main point. That is what, what the problem was in the Garden of Eden, you know, and that's the one that we would carry on our back for, for the rest of our pilgrimage here on earth. And so don't feel bad about this. You're not the only one. Jesus knew about it. He would, and he knew that it was not just the 12 that would have some problems, you know, with, with, with relationships and all these things, but it would be also down the ages. And I'm going to reread those verses that Tim read. It was three verses and count in those short three verses, how many times says G Jesus says the word one, to be one? I mean, there's many concepts in every word of unity, but how many times simply he says the word one, to be one? That they all may be one. <clears throat> As you, Father, are in me and I in you, I pray that they may also be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me before that I, I gave to them, that they may be one just as we are one. In them, I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. It's, it's a lot of repetition, isn't it? But that word one is one that prominently comes up to the surface as one that comes back over and over again. Five times in three short verses, correct? 
he asked this just once for his 12 disciples back then. He asks it five times. He mentions five times this for us. Do we need this prayer? You bet we do. He, Jesus knew that, not just us here. All of these believers down the ages, he knew that. That's why he prayed for it. That's why he prays for it right now. Understand? That important. By this shall all men know. That's the identifying mark that the world may know. The success of Jesus' entire mission is hinging on this. It's not hinging on anything else. You know, we think that, well, if we had a better building and if we had better clothes, and we had, all these are outside things. The core of it all is that God of love that we can experience for ourselves and manifest to each other. And the last request that Jesus has in this prayer is for the complete fulfillment of his desire for unity. He asked the Father that they, that they, meaning us, would be with him where he is, that we may behold the full glory that he had from the beginning. In other words, Jesus is saying the fulfillment of all this is not just that they experience and show love down there, but that they can be with us in this place, in heaven that is entirely filled with love. That's his dream. That's Jesus' dream. That was foremost in his mind at that moment as he was contemplating the long separation until his second return. He was considering this for his disciples and then for all of the believers that they would win to the knowledge of him. That includes us. Now, this last prayer of Jesus recorded in John 17 was prayed with the disciples in the upper room, Mount of Olives, on Thursday evening, right before Easter. For us, Easter, was, was the Thursday was April 21st for us. Now, please for, fast forward to the same two places, that's the upper room and the Mount of Olives, on Thursday 40 days after Easter. And for us, that'd be just around, you know, last Thursday. The texts that relate what happened on that Thursday are Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1. That's the ascension of Jesus. Right? Now, I'm reading from Luke 24. So they arose up that very hour and they returned to Jerusalem. That's the disciples to Emmaus. And they went where the disciples were gathered. That was the upper room. And as they were talking to them, Jesus appeared to them. And he opened their understanding. And then there's a shortcut that goes straight to basically right before his ascension. And we read in verse 49, Jesus said, You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. See, Jesus could not be with them and send the Holy Spirit at the same time. He had to go up first, back to where he was with the Father, and then he would send the Holy Spirit to be with all believers throughout the planet. So he says, I'm, I'm going to go up, but I'm going to send the promise of the Father upon you. But he gives them instructions on how to wait for the Father's promise and what to do. 
you know, in our church, evangelism is so important. It's, 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 it's encouraged. We have a message to proclaim. Revelation 14, da, 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 da. All of these things we have to do. An alternate title for my message of this morning would be Jesus' plan for evangelism. Because he gave, us to, he gave it to us. If you love one another, the world would know they'll come to me. But here he says, Behold, I send you the promise of the Father upon you. But tarry first. Don't go and try to do that. Tarry first in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And then he led them away as far as Bethany, that's the top of the Mount of Olives, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them, and he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they returned to Jerusalem to do what he had said. That's Luke 24. In Acts chapter 1, we have the parallel account, also written by Luke. And Luke, Luke says that being, verse 4, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. The Holy Spirit whose fruit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and all of these things. Now, when he had said this to them, even after the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the 40 days, and so on and so forth, still after that, they had the same question that they had before the crucifixion in Matthew 24. They asked him, oh, well, Lord, will you at that time restore the kingdom to Israel? See, they are still down to earth with the visible stuff. And he said to them, it's not for you to know these things. And then he goes back to what he really wants to tell them. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem then. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Then when he had spoken these things as they washed on the Mount of Olives, he was taken up, a cloud received him out of their sight. Then they returned to Jerusalem, verse 12, into the upper room where they were staying. And verse 14, and they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. And if you read from Ellen White completely unfolds this as they were there in that upper room in prayer, the Holy Spirit uh, was, was moving in their hearts. They prayed with each other. The a spirit of love was with them, and then the Holy Spirit came and continued to teach them and to empower them to do the work that Jesus had given them to do in the way that he had told them it would be done. So, here we are. We are those that Jesus prayed for in this prayer. Those that are in need of this gift of love to be able to fulfill the mission and the dreams of Jesus. Those who must through prayer and devotions, wait and receive the gift that empowers us to do that in a successful manner. What a plan of action for them and what a plan of action for us. I want to finish with a story, a story that you find in many cultures of the world. The version that I know of this story is from the Lakita uh, Native American tradition right here. In it, there's a man who was leading the clan, and he was blind and older, but wise. He didn't have all the strength and the skills anymore, but his reputation for heart wisdom was there among the people. One day, however, 
the man is visited by some younger men in the village who are anxious to become the village leaders instead of him and who seem bent on disapproving his wisdom and clairvoyance and showing up that he's a fraud. Their plan is very simple. They enter his house and they ask the question, the answer to which rides on his difference from them, a difference that they consider as a profound disability, his age and blindness and his position. They stand before him and one says, Man, I hold a bird in my hand. Tell me whether it is living or dead. You may have heard the story before. But they have it made. If he says he's dead, they'll let the bird fly away. If he says the bird is alive, they'll just give a little squeeze and the bird will be dead. Whichever way, they've got him. The man does not answer. And the question is repeated. Is the bird that I'm holding living or dead? Still, he does not answer. He is blind and cannot see his visitor, let alone what's in their hands. They are hiding in his darkness. He's blind. He does not know them. He does not know their color, gender, or homeland. He only knows one thing. He knows their motive. The old man's silence is so long, the young men have trouble holding their laughter. Finally, he speaks, and his voice is soft but stern. I don't know, he says. I don't know whether the bird you're holding is dead or alive. But what I do know is that it is in your hands. It is in your hands. His answer can be taken to mean, if it's dead, you have either found it this way or you've killed it. If it's alive, you can still kill it. Whether it is to stay alive is your decision. Whatever case, the responsibility is yours. For parading their power and his helplessness, the young visitors are reprimanded by the villagers, told they are responsible not just for mockery, but also for the small bundle of life sacrificed to achieve its claims. But the blind man, who's wise from the heart, shifts attention away from the assertions of power to the instrument their hand through which that power is exercised and the damage that's done to life through its exertion. Now, this story has lots of applications. It has applications for graduates. Graduates, your future is where? In your hands. Many other applications. Be it as it may, we also hear talks about church attendance and church finances in North America, the future of the Christian church as an organization, or even the future of Christianity. We hear about these things in Christian circles. Or even closer to home, level of tithe giving, giving and attendance, or the level of simple joy that's experienced in local congregations. Is it alive or is it dead? Jesus prayed that it be alive. He knows that it will be alive. But the answer, the answer to where, whether you and we are alive with the spirit that God wants to give us 
to feel the love and develop and be taught of the love that will be seen by others as convincing enough for them to give their hearts to God and to be with us when Jesus brings us to the place that is prepared for us. The answer to that is not in somebody else out there. That's projection. The answer is very simply in my and your hands. It is in your hands. Great God of love, there's a sense of celebration even in this prayer of Jesus that his purpose are being accomplished. And we want, as we close this time of worship together, we want to celebrate the achievements of our graduates. We want to celebrate the achievements that we have made, that you, by your spirit, have been able to achieve in us, in this community, in this church, in our families, and so on and so forth. But as the summer comes in, and as we've listened to these words of Jesus, we want to reach another level. We are entering another phase, and we ask that we would be more receptive this week even to your spirit, that we would spend the time that's needed in centering ourselves in you in prayer and in devotion to be taught of the Holy Spirit how to fulfill this prayer of Jesus, which he is praying for us right now in the heavenly sanctuary before he comes. Help us, especially as Fox Valley Church, that we may be a, a full and fuller representation of your love to this community before the coming of Jesus. And now may your blessing rest on each one of us, on our young people, on our older people, and each one of us uh, preserve us safely, bless uh, the mothers, the fathers, and each one. And we thank you for answering this prayer because we ask it together in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. <laughs>